this is Ian Perry. Welcome to Keeping Green, broadcasting from the University of Calgary at 90.9 FM on Treaty 7 land and in Métis Region 3. On this episode of Keeping Green, I'll preview the material that we'll be covering in September's episode of Keeping Green on the reintroduction of coal mining in Alberta's Rocky Mountains. And given that this is our 12th episode, I want to feature some of the best interviews we've had over the last year of broadcasting. Stick around. This broadcast is number 12 for us at Keeping Green. And after a year, we have had some amazing discussions with some phenomenal guests. And as I was reflecting on some of these moments, I decided that I wanted to feature some of our best material in today's episode. But first, I want to discuss the story we'll be covering in next month's episode, and that is the scrapping of a coal policy from 1976 that restricted coal development and exploration in Alberta's Rocky Mountains and Foothills. What I want to do here today is talk a little bit about the context of coal in Alberta, specifically some history, and then next time we'll talk with some experts and fill out the picture and sort of assess what the future may hold for coal as it moves forward. Coal deposits in Alberta date back to about 140 million years ago, when this area was warm and wet and included a spongy peat bog landscape of decomposing plant matter. Then sediments filled in the peaty landscape as the material that would later become the Rocky Mountains washed in from other rocky landforms. Eventually, the peat formations were compressed and hardened under the sheets of rock and began to lift up in the process of orogeny, or mountain building, forming the Rocky Mountains as we know them today. The earliest indigenous people of this region would have discovered coal in seams that had been naturally exposed in the mountains and the badlands. However, history tells us that indigenous people considered burning of coal to be taboo, though there is evidence that they used it for carvings. Early Europeans, on the other hand, were determined to burn coal, since it burned longer and hotter than wood and was ideal for blacksmithing. The rest, of course, is history. Alberta's economy was dependent on coal for a long time. It made us who we are, and in a sense, it's something to be proud of. We certainly spearheaded the age of fossil fuels. But now, in the midst of a global economic slowdown, there is renewed interest in revitalizing the coal industry in Alberta and reintroducing coal mining in what were previously deemed environmentally sensitive areas in Alberta's foothills and Rocky Mountains and have been protected for over 40 years. As of June 1st, 2020, the Alberta government under the United Conservative Party has rescinded a 44-year-old policy to regulate coal development in the province. The 1976 policy covered a few different aspects of coal development, 
including land use planning for exploration activities and mining. Essentially, the policy broke Alberta lands into four categories to denote a range of restrictions for coal development. Category 1 land had the tightest restrictions for coal, with lands in categories 2 through 4 becoming less restrictive. Now here's what the Alberta government of today has to say about these categories. And I quote, When these categories were created, land use planning hadn't yet been completed. Supporting infrastructure was lacking and there were environmental concerns that the existing regulatory processes weren't equipped to address. Well, I find that kind of vague. And what it sounds like they're saying to me is, well, in 1976, they really didn't know what they were talking about, but we do now, so forget about this policy. Well, I dove into the 1976 document entitled A Coal Development Policy for Alberta, and I read the classification of land section. So, Category 1 land was the most restricted to coal development, and the criteria for these lands are pretty clear. Category 1 covers areas which were the most environmentally sensitive and included areas under protective status like national and provincial parks, but it also covered like major waterways. These areas would never be considered for coal development. Category 2 still included environmentally sensitive habitat, and thus the 1976 document deemed Category 2 lands as befitting underground mining only, with more environmentally impactful surface mining declared as unacceptable in Category 2 lands. However, there were two other conditions by which lands were deemed as Category 2 in 1976. One, that infrastructure facilities were absent, and two, the preferred land or resource use remained to be determined. So, granted, Category 2 lands... Uh, the designations were somewhat open-ended in this 1976 policy, and it reads as if the policymakers were anticipating amendments. Now, the government of 2020 seems to be alluding to this when they call the categories from the 1976 document obsolete. But what about the first clause about restricting surface mines in Category 2 based on environmental sensitivity. I don't think that's obsolete. But perhaps the government of today believes they can permit surface mining in sensitive areas because modern mining techniques present less environmental impact than it did 44 years ago. I don't know. There seem to be more questions than answers right now. But one thing seems clear. The 1976 coal policy was a blanket policy. It presented a tiered system of very clear coal restrictions across a set of well-defined areas. But now that policy has been scrapped and there's actually no clear understanding of where mining exploration and development, including surface mining, will occur in lands that were previously deemed to have moderate or high environmental sensitivity. Well, the way I see it, one of the worst things about removing a blanket policy 
for certain industrial activities is that it makes conservation objectives far less realistic. Take, for instance, the West Slope cutthroat trout. Now, this is listed as threatened under the Provincial Wildlife Act and the Federal Species at Risk Act. This species is found in Alberta only in remnant populations. It was once found in 71 watersheds in its Alberta range, but as of 2017, it resides only in the upstream portion of 31 watersheds. Now, on the Alberta government website, one of the major threats to this fish is habitat loss brought on by industrial activity like mining and the damage that it does to watercourses. So now that this mining is allowed to re-establish in many upland stream basins, how can we ensure that protective measures for cutthroats won't get undermined? Are we willing to lose all of the ground we've covered with protecting this and other endangered species in the eastern slopes? Now, to conclude this preamble, I want to say that based on my observation, it's not the 1976 coal policy that's obsolete and out of date. We have a government that's playing with a time machine. And taking us back to an era that predates the 1970s, when industrial development took priority over environmental conservation, as those activities took place in an unrestricted manner. But more on this next episode, airing in September of 2020. To turn your attention to one really interesting online resource, to get a sense of the coal mining footprint in the Alberta Rockies throughout time, visit the Coal Mine Map Viewer. This is a web-based GIS with polygon features that delineate the footprint of all coal mining activity in the province, both past and present. And you can see the kind of geographic scale that many operations occupy. And you can use this to decide for yourself whether taking uh, this step toward economic recovery, that is, lowering the restrictions on coal mining in sensitive upstream mountain habitats, is worth it. talk of conservation in light of coal developments in the province has taken me back to almost a year ago when I spoke with a good pal. His name's Nicholas Pete, and we talked on this show about sort of the origins of conservation or maybe the philosophy uh, behind conservation. It's a good place to head back to. Uh, sort of recalibrate before we sort of get really in the reeds uh, over this coal debate. So here now is just a little bit of my conversation with Nick Pete from the fall of 2019. 
in a sense, the idea of a park as a snapshot of an ideal, mm-hmm. although wonderful to visit and mm-hmm. captivating and in many ways mind-blowing, it's yeah. got this darker undercurrent to me. Why can't everything be park, you know? Why can't we... We're treated like such. Yeah, and redefine our idea of of value and what the value of land is. Like, is land only a... a place for economic activity and to produce commodities. Sure, like we need that activity to go on, but you know, at, at what cost to everything else? And oh. I think in some schools of conservation, the, there's somewhat of a spectrum of conservation initiative uh, from one far end being nature for itself which doesn't incorporate any sort of human element. And that, I think, stretches back to uh, the Romantic period. But that spectrum then stretches right across to the other far end, which is um, nature and people. So it's like, well, we, in some ways, that means cut our losses um, and begin to plan resource uh, conservation uh, with human usage very well in the center of the picture. Right. Well, it goes back quite far to an old enlightenment idea, this bifurcation of of human beings in nature that's still so much with us and at the root of so much of our different academic disciplines, like the degree to which that old school way of thinking and old school philosophy, philosophy permeates in the culture is, I think, ripe for reassessment now at this period of time, because we need to adopt, in my opinion, much more of a a relationship such that we are not apart from it, but a part of it. And of course, this is not my idea. It's kind of like you've got to put people in the ecosystem rather than have us standing outside of it. Sure. And that kind of goes most importantly, I think, for the economy. The economy needs to be inside the ecosystem, not so much just drawing down on it. Certainly. And like, I mean, to look at the etymology of the word ecology and the word economy, which is something I was looking at as part of my master's research, it derives from the same Greek root word, right, which literally translates to the management of one's household. And, you know, the planet is our household. It is a spaceship we're all traveling on together. And as far as how we measure and define our modes of exchange through economy, I think we really need to take a hard look at ecological dynamics and how our modes of exchange are very much related to that and not necessarily dissimilar from how operations inherent in an ecosystem ebb and flow. You're listening to the 12th episode of Keeping Green, and we're diving into the vault and playing some of our favorites from the last several months. 
So now I would like to revisit a story with an inspiring character by the name of Cliff Wallace, who works for the Alberta Wilderness Association and has spent his life spearheading conservation initiatives and in a very, very special place to all of us here in southern Alberta, the grasslands. So here now is a little piece that I did with Cliff Wallace sometime over the winter where he describes some of his trials and tribulations right here in our prairie landscape. So here where we're sitting, we're next to this giant complex of national parks and other protected areas in the Rocky Mountains. And yet the grassland biome has disappeared significantly and doesn't have the same protections so what motivated you to be a conservationist in the grassland area? Well, I think actually it was probably at the University of Calgary. My professors encouraged us to get involved with the local naturalist clubs and, and get out. And I saw how much of the grassland has gone and how little it was loved. I called it the Rodney Dangerfield of the ecosystem world. It didn't get no respect. <laughs> so I've been working for decades to to write that, and I can report that it's getting a lot more respect now, but we still don't have enough protected. So to bring it down to some of these grassland protection areas, you seem to be a master at getting protection in place for some areas, um, protecting other areas from development. But I think it takes a lot to get people on the same page. And what are your secrets for sort of orchestrating energy companies, indigenous groups, ranchers, and all these wildly different stakeholders and getting them into an agreement around the table? Well, I think as uh, one rancher told me at a public meeting, just shut up and listen. And I think that's good advice. Trying to understand where their concerns are and, uh, as I said to another rancher who wanted to put a fist through my face, I don't think we're that far apart. We just have different ways of getting there. And with that rancher, we went from that confrontation to working on a plan for the Milk River Natural Area and Ecological Reserve down along the U.S.-Canada border and uh, got it protected. And we're still co-managing that area to this day. Uh, he was just concerned that Basically, we wanted to kick everybody out and there would be no, no use down there. And in fact, we reintroduced grazing animals there because it had been missing for decades. And so it's the kind of give and take uh, that we need. There are some people whose value systems are not the same, but I find that's the very small minority. And I'll give up 5 or 10% of what I want to get 90% protection. I think we have to go down that road. We have so little. We have less than 2% protected in the grasslands in, in Alberta. We didn't even meet our business plan targets of government. And it's one of the most threatened ecosystems in the world, the temperate grasslands. And the northern Great Plains has been identified by the World Wildlife Fund as one of the global 200 ecoregions that it's working on because of the threats and the lack of protection. And so, I mean, I've worked with the Bison Reintroduction Project in Banff National Park. And, you know, right now, as you would know, that it's it has the benefit of these vast areas of Banff National Park that really don't get much visitor traffic. So it's a great place to kind of 
reintroduce the animal and in a very controlled place. Would it be realistic in the near future to have bison grazing in along the parkland and in the grasslands? I certainly hope so. Uh, we have the E&E initiative, uh, the uh, Buffalo Treaty, that uh, many First Nations and tribes from the U.S. Uh, have signed on to. In fact, there's a meeting right going on right now in Albuquerque in New Mexico, uh, the American Bison Society, and that is their goal, is to reintroduce bison back into the wild. I don't think we can have reconciliation with First Nations if we don't fix some of uh, this issue. I mean, it was a center of Plains, uh, First Nations culture. Uh, it was the center of prairie ecosystem ecology, uh, that disturbance regime of big herds of grazing animals, uh, the predators that followed them, uh, the prairie dogs, uh, ground squirrels that were attracted to those grazed areas. Uh, it was just a system that was complete uh, and supported a lot more life than is there today. I mean, that's the one regret I have in terms of the time I'm living in is I go out to those places and I see what could have been uh, just the variety of wildlife. And it's really neat to see uh, tribes like at Fort Peck in Montana, Fort Belknap, uh, some of the southern plains where private uh, conservationists are buying up big tracts of grassland and putting bison back in. So we know we can do it. Uh, there's a lot of opposition from some communities, like in Montana, but in South Dakota, it seems to be okay. Uh, in parts of Colorado, it seems to be okay. So we need to find out what the barriers are and why people don't want bison uh, and why they do want bison in some areas and work with those communities to make sure those concerns are addressed because we know we can do it and we can do it successfully. The American Prairie Reserve has a big area on the north side of the Charles M. Russell National Wildlife Refuge and I think they're getting additional lands from the refuge where they will be able to graze bison on a larger landscape. I think it's exciting. I've been waiting decades to, to see this. And in fact, in the Milk River Natural Area, the local rancher who wanted to punch me out, <laughs> he actually wanted to graze bison in there, but the government wouldn't allow it at that time. So I think there's support, uh, but you can't just push it and go for it. It took us a long time to get bison into Grasslands National Park, any kind of grazing into Grasslands National Park in Saskatchewan. Uh, but they're there now, so and people are starting to see the benefits. Right. I suppose if we want to move away from a very command and control style of management, we have to get our heads around the idea of sort of these large corridors. And I know you've got initiatives like Y2Y, and they want to connect up thousands and thousands of kilometers. In the Rockies, it seems easy to do because there's already a network of parks, and there have been for I mean, it's over a century in some cases. It's different on the plains, isn't it? Because you've got cultivated land and corridors are just not as practical. Yeah, it's it's a bigger challenge. I'll uh, give you that. But there are people protecting grasslands and concerned about the future of grasslands, both in the ranching community and the conservation community uh, in nonprofit groups like ours. But... Um, I don't think it's insurmountable. Uh, some of the rural areas in that region that we're looking at are going bust. You know, small towns are not there anymore. Yeah. Services are not there. So there are places where I think 
it's a new economic opportunity and a chance, as I say, at reconciliation uh, with the First Peoples out there. That was just part of my conversation with Cliff Wallace from the Alberta Wilderness Association. And the next piece and last piece I want to play today is very much about reconciliation with the First Peoples of Canada. As we revisit the story that I did in February with Catherine Tanise of the Tunaka people, just west of Calgary in the Columbia Valley, where the Jumbo Ski Resort, after 30 years of deliberation, was finally turned over to the First Peoples for them to protect however they wish. What you're about to hear is Catherine Tanise of the Tunaka people express how she felt about the way the Supreme Court of Canada dealt with her people's spiritual beliefs around Jumbo. Yeah, well, the court the court proceeding, I think, um, uh, what it demonstrated was the fact that um, that society as a whole and as you know, as represented by the the judges who sat on the Supreme Court bench, have a great deal of difficulty in being able to wrap their minds around the fact that uh, um, the spiritual spiritual beliefs of Indigenous people does uh, have the right to be expressed. And, and that, you know, that's mainly what we were arguing. We were saying we have, a, we have spiritual beliefs, and in this case it's connected to a place, and we want recognition that, you know, our... Our beliefs uh, and our expression of spirituality means something, that it should be able to exist alongside of any other set of spiritual beliefs that exist in this country. You know, I, I still feel that they were, you know, that they didn't really address what, what it was that we, were, that we were trying to bring their attention to. Right. You know, I, I'm, I'm sort of reminded of, I believe, uh, a Tunaka colleague of yours in the film that Patagonia produced. He said if somebody walked up to the gates of the Vatican with some plans to develop a resort, you know, they wouldn't even get through the gate. And yeah. this shouldn't be any different. And, I mean, putting it in, the, in that term, it's unfortunate it needs to be brought down to that kind yeah, of terminology. And, I mean, yeah, and that's exactly what we were arguing. We were saying that our spiritual beliefs, just because they're not the same as anybody else, they deserve, you know, they they do exist and they they deserve acknowledgement by others that they do exist and, and they should be taken into account as decisions are made. We said that nowhere during the course of all of, you know, sort of all of the deliberations, was there any anything that expressed, uh, you know, in in any kind of definitive way, the existence of our spiritual beliefs? You know, it, it there was a lot of language skirting around it, and you know, sort of, well, you know, okay, maybe they exist, or you know, maybe it's held by some people, and, you know, and but never, you know, there was never acknowledgement, and that's that's what we were seeking to 
to achieve. We know that our, our planet is, is undergoing huge changes as a result of um, our activity as human beings, and so we need to obviously be looking, you know, at um, specific places to ensure that we're, you know, we're protecting some something for future generations. But at the same time, you know, looking from a global perspective at, you know, what we are doing to, you know, to this planet in terms of, of our activity. We can't control anything else but our own impacts. And um, I think that uh, hopefully we're all putting our minds towards that to, you know, to acknowledge and recognize that that we, you know, we have a, a collective interest in ensuring, you know, the survival of the of the planet in as healthy a way as we possibly can. You've been listening to a series of clips from episodes that I've done over the last year as we mark the 12th episode of Keeping Green. Be sure and join us next month, September 2020, as we jump into a very serious matter, the revitalization of coal mining in the province of Alberta, and specifically in sensitive habitats in the Canadian Rockies. Remember, you can find Keeping Green on Instagram at keeping underscore green, and you can catch up with us on our own website, at keepinggreenpodcast.wordpress.com. I'm Ian Perry, and until next time, keep it green.